Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Anya Taylor-Joy doesn't want you to hear. <laughs> it's Monkeys and Playbills, y'all! I knew, y'all. I knew it. I could feel it's it. It's gotta be, right? It's I gotta be! I could feel it. Oh, I could feel that one coming a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> that is Paul DeGers, everyone. And that's Jillian Willems. Together, we're the hosts of Monkeys and Playbills. And the person you hear giggling in the background, <laughs> one of our favorite people on the planet. I'd say possibly one of my favorite people in Canada, in Canadian theatre. She doesn't realize this, but I gave a whole thing about it last week in the prep as well. It's Julie Lumsden. Woo! Thanks for having me, friends. Those of you who only know Julie from her prolific uh, Canadian performing career may not know that she comes from Winnipeg initially and was a member of the little community that we've got here. Um, the three of us worked together a whole bunch on a bunch of cool projects. The one I hold closest to my heart is we spent a uh, Christmas doing Charlie Brown at the Manitoba Theatre for young people all together. And it was just wonderful. Many other cool projects with cool theater companies. And now Jalums has taken the world by storm. You're in, you're at Shaw right now, right? <laughs> I don't know if it's by storm, but I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in my third season at the Shaw Festival, my second pandemic season. So. Yay! <laughs> yes. So why is Jalums here, Jill? What, what do we do on this show that we would have a guest to talk about something? My favorite thing is that I have never been the one to describe what we do here ever. Let's try to do it opposite and I'll do your part. I'll try. Oh my gosh. Okay. Here at Monkeys and Playbills, we research and investigate shows that had Broadway runs of 100 performances or fewer, not counting previews. And what the heck happened? And today we've brought Julie Lumsden on board in order to discuss and try to figure out the musical chess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This show's wild. It feels like I was transported in time and soul and emo. Like, I just, yeah, I, I have almost no words. <laughs> so, Julie, I think it, it might be good to hear from you before we jump into the show what your relationship maybe might be with this musical, and if not with this musical, maybe with this style of music. So, my relationship with chess itself up until this point, was very minimal. It was mostly mm -hmm. <laughs> sitting in the um, planetarium auditorium at the Manitoba Museum mm -hmm. for the 13 and under Winnipeg Music Festival theater <laughs> or uh, music theater part of music festival yes. and hearing people sing songs from chess. And I just was like, wow, this musical seems great. Not interested enough to look into it. <laughs> That's very similar to my experience with chess before, maybe a little bit before this. I knew it a bit more, but doing a 9.30 a.m. play in someone else's story or who I want to be or something. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like people who are just not the right age but that's what we do this is absolutely it's a rite of passage cool. so <laughs> yeah what about you jill oh i had like almost zero relationship with it i think in theater school Stuart, my friend sang anthem and i remember being really amazed by it it was a beautiful song so um that's my relationship with chess this is probably our most requested musical after Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which we're saving for a very special episode. But you know, honest to God, not to come out too much with it without, um, without even getting into things, but man, after listening to the concept album, I see where their heads are at. Yeah. Doesn't matter. We'll get into it. Okay. Let me get going with yeah. our uh, deets here. Yeah. Previews began at the Imperial Theatre on April 11th, 1988. 
It opened on April 28th, 1988, and closed on June 25th, 1988, after 17 previews and only 68 performances. And that's really surprising, because before that, it had been on the West End for like three years, right? Yes. Like, it had done very well for itself in the UK, and then they made some enormous changes to make it more palatable to a US audience, I guess. <laughs> Because there's this, yeah, well, it's, it's got to be this wildly successful concept album moving on to this really successful UK run to just a disaster Broadway run, which had kind of earned it its reputation as a disaster musical. Mm -hmm. But like, if that had gone any different, this would be Les Mis. That's right. It would be. <laughs> Up until the Broadway transfer, it was on that exact same trajectory. It was the exact same thing. <sighs> And we'd be doing it at the regional level every year. It would be the Mamma Mia <laughs> of this universe. People would flip out, be like, they just released the race to chess. Oh my God, who's going to do chess? I could be Anatoly. Oh, I could be Freddy. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I think it would be awesome for Paul and Julie together to try to give me a synopsis of this musical. And I'm saying try because this is a weird one. Even in the sense that like when I was watching it, I had to be also then reading along. And the fact that you look up, like Paul said, this has been like puzzle pieced so many different ways yes. that you look up any plot description or synopsis and you're like, one night in Bangkok didn't happen there. It happened no. here. Yeah. And like, yeah. so again, I, you gotta, it's like, you have to do your research and figure out which iteration it is. Totally. It's a lot. <laughs> okay, let's give this a try. So we start on a stage. And we find ourselves with a um, a guy singing to his little his little kid, right? Yeah. And he sings a whole um, a whole song about the history of chess. Yeah, riveting. And it's kind of a nice song, right? It's kind of this like waltzy. Um, definitely sounds like Eastern European. Mm -hmm. um, and because they do indicate he that this is taking place in like Hungary or something. Yeah, Budapest. Yeah, totally. And then we we time jump a bunch, and now it's like twenty years later or something. And we meet Freddie Trumper. That is such a weird name. <laughs> that is the name of someone who, like, someone who is non-American going, we need to have an American. What should we name him? And they go, Absolutely. hmm. Well, and you know what it is as well? I think it's a little bit of like, because he's based on the American chess champion from the 80s, this guy Bobby Fischer, mm -hmm, who's this right. wild dude. So I think it's kind of like that thing of like, what's a name that kind of sounds like Bobby Fischer without oh it being directly God, that? yeah. So they got the E and er at the very end. The same, like, <laughs> syllables. <laughs> and he's the he's the bad boy of Worldwide Chess. There's always one. <laughs> there's, there's always there's gotta be one. If anyone has seen Queen's Gambit, we know this, right? Yeah, this is exactly. what we learned. And he's dating the little the little girl who's now a fully grown woman. This is 20 years <laughs> later. Well, yeah, I meant to specify know, the little girl who is now no, a fully grown woman. Her name's Florence. <laughs> and they're dating. And Freddie's always like flying off the handle. He's always grumpy about things. Toxic masculinity. Tox he's the, he's yes. the epitome of toxic masculinity. And it's the 80s, so he's wearing like... It's all power suits. It's all gray. Oh, yeah. It's a very gray show. So we meet, we meet him, and he's always flying off the handle. And we meet the current world chess champion, who's this guy, Anatoly. Mm -hmm. He's a Russian dude. And this is, the, this is in the 80s, so this is Soviet Russia. This is the height of the Cold War. In general, this is a wild show because it's so many 
feelings and very little plot moving forward, right? Yes. So they're going to have a chess match, these two chess champions. So they go to the match. There's like opening ceremonies. The interviews. It's like an MMA fight when they come out and they like pose in front of each other and their foreheads touch and you can feel them. It felt like that, like an (laughs) MMA fight. But then you're like, oh, wait, this is about chess. (laughs) They're touching brains. They're they're exchanging brain power. <laughs> I believe they do a brain weigh-in before the match. For the, um, yeah, so it's a super big deal. Apparently, this is kind of the way championship chess was in the 80s, at least more so than now. But it certainly is pretty goofy to look at now. <laughs> and then they're playing. So they get to, down to this chess match. And Anatoly starts to munch on some yogurt. Yes. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And Freddy's like, absolutely not. Can't have that. He's clearly cheating. Yeah. And he loses his mind because he's a hothead. And he leaves. And this is like 40 minutes in. This is four yeah, minutes and right. this has been going on so lo- for quite long already because this musical is three hours long. Oh my God. So it kind of goes back and forth where Florence um, goes to get Freddy and Freddy's grumpy about it and um, they just kind of fight. And then um, Florence sings a song about how she's sad um, and it, she sounds very good and it's very nice. Yeah, it's a good song. Most of her songs are, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause then, so then Freddy's like, fuck this, I'm going out on the town. And he says, oh, this is in Bangkok. They're in Bangkok right now. No, he sings Breakaway Pop Hit from this show, One Night in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. It was a hit in its own right. It was the big hit from this show. Weird. Okay. And then because Freddie's gone, Florence and Anatoly end up hooking up, right? Yeah, they, they form this like emotional bond through chess and childhood trauma. <laughs> and she has some daddy issues and it's yeah. all, you know. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're, they're an item. And that makes Freddy feel weird. So they go into another chess match, but Freddy's like super off his game because Florence is dating his rival now. Freddy loses a bunch and it's like, oh, you need one more match. If you lose one more match, you're out of the um, out of the tournament. Right. Also, before the end of Act 1, Anatoly wants to defect to the United States. He doesn't want to be Russian anymore, which is fair enough. The USSR was no good. So then Act 1 ends with Anatoly singing this song, Anthem, which is kind of this like, Anthem, not to any country that he feels tied to, but to his love and his love for Florence. And it's all very moving. And that happens in, in the States, right? Like when he lands, there's like a, some reporters that start asking yeah, yeah. questions. Is that the setup for that? Yeah, totally. So act one, act one is the easy act. Here goes <laughs> oh act God. two. It's like we time jump. Okay, now we're in Budapest and we're going to wrap up this these matches. And even though Anatoly's defected to the US, he's still playing for the Russians. So act two centers around, they're going to finish this match, but there's also Florence's dad has been missing and they're going to try to find him. He's a war criminal or he got taken as a hostage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems so strangely like they were like, this woman needs a plot point. Yeah. Yeah. And then we run into uh, Anatoly's ex-wife. Svetlana. That's right. This gets juicy in this moment, actually. I like it. Not just one woman. We now have two in the whole musical. But they just probably talk about a guy anyway. You know. (laughs) So this this stresses Anatoly out. He doesn't play very well. And Freddy manages to tie up the chess matches. So now we're like tied up. We find Florence's father at some point. Yes. Yeah. Um. So the second, someone's second assistant finds 
I'm doing air quotes, finds her dad. But I don't know what, like, I don't know what the point of it was. Was it to throw someone off maybe so they could win? I think it was, I think it was because the, the idea is it throws Anatoly off. Right. So it's yeah. like ex-wife is layer one. Yeah. And then it's like dad is layer two. The stakes change. It's not just that the stakes raise. The stakes being raised would be great. But the stakes are just wildly changing mm-hmm. every every chess match. Yeah, yeah. Because then then we're at the end and Anatoly's all messed up in his head and Freddy wins. Yeah. It, then it ends really sad. And then it ends, it turns out that Florence, the, the person they found isn't actually Florence's dad. And then Anatoly leaves her and Freddie leaves her and Florence is all alone and she's sad. Justice for Florence. Justice for Florence, yeah. Yes. We maybe need like chess to Florence's revenge. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That's the plot as it stood to the best of our recollection to the Broadway version that we're going to focus most of our attention on today that was in, um, in the late 80s. That didn't do very well on Broadway. The plot that that existed in the UK was way different. Significantly, it ended up with Anatoly winning the tournament, not Freddy. And this character, the Arbiter, who's like a pretty insignificant part of this Broadway version, was very significant before and in later productions is very significant again. Um, As this kind of, this person who's presiding over the chess matches and... Yelling a lot. And yelling a lot and kind of being this like... (laughs) omnipotent narrator MC thing almost, you know? Doing a lot of arbiting. Doing a lot of arbiting, just a ton of arbiting. So yeah, but that's not the version that was on Broadway. And that's also not the version that has continued to be licensed or continued to exist. Because this show's really long, but not much happens. Like every plot point we just described, they sit in for like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, so it ends up being quite, quite long and the pacing is kind of weird. So stageagent.com says... Chess is used as a metaphor for romantic rivalries and the U.S.-Soviet rivalry during the Cold War. The main characters form a love triangle. The ill-mannered American grandmaster, the intense Russian champion who plans on defecting to the West, and the Hungarian-American female chess second who arrives at the international championships with the American but falls in love with the Russian. From Bangkok to Budapest... The players, lovers, politicians, and spies all struggle to get the upper hand. That makes it sound really good. Does what? it? <laughs> Do you not think? I watched that. That sounds great. It makes it sound like 90 minutes long. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the thing you have to remember is that at the end of the day, these spies and lovers and everything, it revolves around chess. The game of chess. <laughs> like, it's just, it's inherently boring. It's inherently boring. Or romantic. Or is it romantic? It's not. <laughs> I agree that it does seem really to have the like the reporters swarming them and everything you know what I mean but I think there's something to the idea of international conflict because that that gets wrapped up in sports so much right it gets wrapped up in the Olympics or in right. and in the 80s it was wrapped up in chess mm-hmm. there is something to that we'll get into it it doesn't matter <laughs> Um, so in terms of historical context about this play, I think we should talk just a bit about all the different versions. So it might be worth maybe discussing how this came to be. (laughs) Well, it started as a concept album. This was all the rage in the 70s. Andrew Lloyd Webber was doing it, most famously with Jesus Christ Superstar. So the, the two gentlemen who are the two gentlemen in ABBA and who um, do a lot of the composing for the, um, Swedish pop group ABBA. We're like, we'd love to get into theater. And this makes a lot of sense. Abba's music in general has always been real theatrical. This is the reason that years later, they'd be able to make what is easily the best jukebox musical ever in Mamma Mia out of their music. Before that, they decided to write chess. So this is Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulveus, who are real cool composers. And they composed this concept album. 
And it's a real hit. It's a smash hit. I read that originally Tim Rice wanted to write this with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And then his pal was like, come up with something and I'll let you know. And then I guess like years later, so like late 70s, Tim Rice was like, okay, I'm going to do it. It's going to be about chess. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber was like, oh, actually, I'm busy right now. I'm writing Cats. Oh, my so God. You have to find you have to find other people. And then that's where he, I think, was introduced to Benny and Bjorn. In another universe, we never got Cats and we got Andrew Lloyd Webber's version of Chess. Yes. Yeah. Which I think would be worse. I don't disagree, but I think it may have been more successful, especially if we use Cats as an example where... You know, if you say, frickin' chess, it's just about chess. This is just about fucking cats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just right. is. And you know, love or hate cats, there's no denying it works. It speaks to audiences on some kind of level. Better than chess did. Way better yeah. than chess did, exactly. So anyway, so they write this concept album with Tim Rice. It's really good. They make it into a West End show. And it's a um, it's an enormous hit. Or not even an, enorm- an enormous hit, but a very strong hit. Mm-hmm. Strong enough that they're like, we should transfer this to the U.S., but it needs a lot of work to translate it to you for, for it to work with US audiences. 1984 was the album release. 1986 was the West End opening. And then it ran for three years. But I think after a year or two in the West End, they were like, let's do it in America. What? Well, and the Broadway one cost $12 million. Was that the Budget twelve million, and that's in the eighties. So that's got to be at least like thirteen trillion, a billion now, yeah. right? Where did that money go? Uh, Hot dogs, video. Like they had three meat. three video screens, right? Oh, right, yeah, that's right. right. And they had the, um, the big revolve. The big revolve. Yeah, yes. they had to buy all those power suits. shoulder pads shoulder pads were expensive then you're right and that's why they had so many men because their budget was so high they could hire you know 98% men (laughs) so that's the context we're going in with and then after this chess never really recovers as a piece it continues to like live Every few years, a tour will get put together or a... A concert. Like there's a tour up in Australia right now, a concert. Yeah. It's de- it's a very much a niche cult musical rather than a, um, a big old musical that a lot of people love. So let's talk about this Broadway production and see where, what caused the downfall of chess. Music by Benny Anderson and Bjorn Olveus. Lyrics by Tim Rice. Based on an idea by Tim Rice because he's an ideas guy. Yeah. Book by Richard Nelson, and music was orchestrated and arranged by Anders Elias. Yeah. And those are our peeps. Let's talk about the music and the lyrics first, because that's where this that's where this show started. It started with music and lyrics in this concept album. And in general, this music is friggin' bumping. It's real. <laughs> I like it a lot, Bumping y'all. like One Night in Bangkok. Oh. There's a lot of bops. There's a so lot many. of bops. One Night in Bangkok's a big old bop. Mm-hmm. The like the overture, like the very beginning, I was very captivated. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I wrote down at one point in this, geez, do I love this music? <laughs> and I do. <laughs> Especially if you, I went back today and I listened to the concept album all the way, uh, all the way through. And it's incredible for a concept album, especially how fully formed it is. Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's a show complete with like, underscoring they've got whole sections they're just instrumentals for the chess matches it's really good there's no question in my mind if you were a producer and you received this and you were like mm-hmm. we want to turn this into a stage show the answer is like hell yeah that makes good yeah. sense 
Uh, right? Isn't that interesting? So, Julie, I think you're the only person among us who trained classically, right? Because, Paul, you went to jazz school. I went to jazz school. <laughs> yep. Julie and I overlapped for a little bit in music school, but didn't hang out because she was in the classical program and I was in the jazz program. He was too yeah. cool for me. He was far too cool. So. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, totally. Um, And I didn't do that, but I wondered if you have any, like, thoughts from a classical perspective about the way this music is built, if it, like, I don't know, tickled your fancy in a way that, like, some musicals don't. I don't know. There's a better way of saying that, but I just couldn't find it. No, that's a good question. That's a real good question. Yeah. Was my fancy tickled? Um... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, there's the writing in this. You can just tell that the composers come from a place where they want to get like an earworm, right? Like things Mm -hmm. are so hooky. The melodies are take you on such a journey and it's so satisfactory. I really love how they play with those. But for me, it really was the format like that Paul was talking about earlier of the fact that like nothing happens. (laughs) That is so similar when we do like opera, right? We don't sing to move the plot forward we feel a big emotion we're gonna sit in Mm -hmm. it and we're gonna sing about it for about five minutes and explore that and we explore that with our voice and we explore that with the notes and the ornamentation and things like that whereas in musical theater a lot of times the plot is going to move forward a little bit more in the songs than in an opera and so it Mm -hmm. felt like in terms of how this piece comes together with the music that it was a little more towards the opera side of things Absolutely. That's real astute, Jay Lums. I appreciate that a lot. I see exactly what you're talking about. And I think that is something I'm trying to overcome as a fan of Sondheim, because I feel like in Sondheim, everything is very plot, very story driven. And I got into this like headspace of like, if that's not the structure of musical theater, then what's it for? But like, you know, learning about new musicals, learning about other musicals, other styles of writing and the origins of that. It's like really helpful for me to wrap my head around like why, why it all matters. And it's all like good. (laughs) Right. It's very like internal life oriented. Like it seemed close to a Les Mis in terms of kind of its grandiosity. Absolutely. And also a a European pop classical hybrid composers. Mm, Absolutely. There's no question. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was interesting to see that. Uh, and I don't think it's a formula we're used to in American musical theater. I wonder if that's that's the reason that it's become so popular, like songs from chess have become so popular, singing songs from chess at a music festival or something, rather than being tied into this larger plot, they can sit on their own. Mm-hmm. This music is not easy to sing. These lead parts, especially these three leads, um, Anatoly, Freddie, and uh, Florence, those are all insane tracks. The intensity with which they're singing, they're all singing so high um, at the tips of their ranges, always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the the parallels between this and Les Mis are really interesting to examine, especially in considering like what made Les Mis the phenomenon that it was. Because Les Mis is plot heavy, but there's, there's, no, there's no denying that. And I would even, song for song, chess is great. There's It's hard to deny it. There's so very little chorus singing. There's a lot of offstage singing. One right? Night in Bangkok is kind of the real only like time that we have. Yeah. And like the interview. There's like two moments. Yeah, but it's very much like we have a chorus and they come in and they do two little things. And other than that, it's like aria, 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 aria. So much so that One Night in Bangkok seems very bizarre. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, it really <laughs> yeah. does feel like the pop plant to be like, yeah. you'll know the song on the radio, so you'll come see this show. Totally, <laughs> for the totally. two minutes. 
Yeah. But I think that might be one of the reasons why this was so unsuccessful because it just feels like after a while you're like, okay, Freddy, can we move on from your problems? Mm -hmm. Whereas with Les Mis, you're getting more characters, you're getting more ensemble singing. And there's some funny songs, which is so funny because if you talk to someone, they would probably say that Les Mis is this like tragic play, which it is. Mm -hmm. However, the composers and writers knew to insert some some levity whereas like in this i feel like the levity is one night in bangkok and it's not even that light it's not funny i i it's really not it made me uncomfortable yeah. it made me very uncomfortable yeah absolutely yeah. yeah so if we were gonna i don't know I, I feel like people want some kind of a rating for um <laughs> for they want they want to be able to attach our opinion to numbers so that they know that it means something then where we stand so let's just yeah. pick a let's pick a random out of ten out of ten playbills. Say how many how many <laughs> monkeys would you say this music is? I would give it six monkeys out of ten playbills. Really? Yeah. There's nothing. Am I am I humming anything today that I heard? Mm. No. But there's songs in there that I'm like, oh, that was nice. I enjoyed it. You know, watching it, I was like, that uh, great. But there's nothing that I'm leaving humming or wanting to sing. What about you, Jill? Uh, I actually am slightly higher. So I would sit at a six and a half, but I'm actually going to give a full point to the act two lady duet. I know him so well. Mm -hmm. It's real good. And not only did we love it, the audience loved it. (laughs) Did you hear how long they clapped for? They were like, yay, they sang together. And I agree. I liked it a lot. And I would like to sing it with Julie Lumsden. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to (laughs) go way higher than both of you. This music sits at an 8.5 for me. Oh my. I'm 0% surprised by that. This is so your aesthetic. Yeah. I have a question for you, Paul. So can you exorcise the concept album from that rating? That's the only reason I gave it this rating is because of that concept Uh, album. So if you, without having heard the concept album, where do you think your rating would have been? Like 5.56. Thank you. Honestly, 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 yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But we'll get into this as we go. There's this real challenge of, and I think this is what the world faced, of separating chess and all the brilliance that exists in chess from this very bizarre production they put on Broadway. (laughs) It's like they they made the choices to represent the material in the worst light. So on that note, let's talk about the book. So if listeners could not tell, it's not necessarily the the book that's the problem, but maybe what happened in its changes, the alterations to it from West End to Broadway. Because as well, it's this weird thing of like Tim Rice, who's the lyricist and the kind of the mover and shaker, had written the book in the UK, but didn't write the US book. Yeah, yeah. Richard Nelson wrote it. I know nothing about Richard Nelson. No, neither do I. That's where a lot of these problems come in, both on a kind of a micro and a macro level to me. It's for the overall scope, the um, the pacing is weird. It starts off so strong and then slows down. Like, like in general, it's like being in a car that like accelerates to 100 miles per hour, then slams on the brakes like seven times. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can imagine that feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> on a micro level, the, the book scenes themselves in general are charmless and... Like a drudge to get through, you know what I mean? You feel like you're slogging through these, waiting for another song. Yeah, it really does feel like they, like, had all these nice decorations being the song and the concept album. 
and then had this house built in the UK and then tried to put it into this other house. Like there, there was no structure that they were yeah. keeping in terms of the plot. And they were just kind of trying to decorate this musical with songs. When I was first listening to it, because I didn't know anything about it, I actually thought that it was sung through. Sure. And I kind of think that might have been a really good idea. Well, it's no coincidence that the biggest, one of the coolest versions of chess to exist is this concert version that was in the um, in the mid-2000s with uh, Josh Groban and Raul Esparza and, uh, and uh, Adina Menzel. It's not a coincidence that just standing and delivering the music with some real good singers is how this music has been, musical has been represented the best in the past 30 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Julie was saying, the, the focus is the music. The decoration really is the music. You don't need much else. Mm-hmm. So here's a question for both of you. Jill, I know you and I line up in the same way as far as like shows about history and major events and like US history especially, love them. J-Lums, I've never talked to you about this as much, but your head's not quite as much there. Yeah, I'm just more like, if it's a good narrative, I'm there. You know, if mm-hmm. if yeah. it, I'm not a huge history buff, wasn't alive yeah. in the 80s, don't know a lot about the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just go like, if I can understand the circumstances, then great. Mm-hmm. But it really feels like with this book and with this plot, that if I don't know the nuances of the tensions between these two countries, that I'm missing a, a third of what this musical could be. Well, this is what I was going to ask because the thing is as a minor an amateur history buff i want them to go way more on it yeah Mm, i'm like actually do it if this is going to be about the tensions between the um america and russia at the height of the cold war with a chess game as an analogy for that then actually make it that right because me being the ignorant millennial that i am (laughs) like i'm watching this being like this is about chess and this is terrible yeah Yeah. right it's actually about this massive moment in time and history like it would have been nice to be let in on that and not have that be some sort of like secret to the plot they bury it and they don't really do it yeah i have a theory folks like we weren't really that far out of it by then I'm still under the impression that things weren't super good at that time. The relationship between the USSR and the USA was still a disaster in the mid-1980s. Absolutely. And I do not think that the writers were confident enough to lay it all out for fear of reprisal. Like, I think there might have been a bit of that, like, we're going to do it, but like, we'll just hint at it so that we don't piss anybody off. But now for us seeing it now, we're like, no, I need more information. Like, I need to know more because I don't, I'm not getting it. No, that's what it's got to be. It's got to be that because you're going, you're transferring it to a place who's actively involved with this. You've got a couple um, two Swedish writers and a um, and a British writer writing about this, and then putting it up in the UK, who's mm-hmm. kind of separated, who's um like one degree removed from this conflict, and they can just watch it and see it. But taking it to the US, who's one side. This is my entire theory by why the transfer didn't work, is because this is so clearly written by people viewing an American experience or viewing this conflict, right? When it's in a place like that's literally in the middle of these two places, like the UK, it's interesting to be like, 
look at these two countries fighting, look at, you know, it, you can be removed. But then, like Paul said, when you bring it to the, the patriotic land of the United <laughs> States, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. and it's already on shaky legs because you've, you're you yeah. changing the endings and you're not quite sure where this metaphor yeah. is really going and things like that. Yes. There's no tie to it because it is from a spectator's point of view, you know? So, like, yes. I just don't think that it could have succeeded in America unless there would have been, like, huge rewrites and real kind of like patriotizing of the musical like i just was like it feels like a satirical take on patriotism and chess yeah that Mm -hmm. like doesn't feel genuine to the american experience probably within that conflict it almost feels like a parody of those sports movies where it was like the u.s versus russia and hockey canada versus russia and hockey you know like yeah, it almost like, seems like a like a like an SNL take on that. It's like the chess version of Rocky. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, did we do it? Did we talk about the book? Should we give it a rating? I would love to. So, out of ten playbills, how many monkeys do we give this book slash concept? I think because it's really all one thing. I mean, I give it a one. I give it <gasps> one. One. Okay, Paul, your turn. I can't go as low as one. I have trouble with that. It's not it's not actively reprehensible. You know what I mean? It's not it's not condemning race or sexual orientation or gender orientation, so it gets a point for that, I guess, for not actively being right? terrible. But passively it's no good. Right. So I'd go two and a half. Y'all are like bottom of the barrel here. I was not thinking that. My job today is to rate the Broadway production. Yeah, that, this is very important. We're rating the Broadway production. Okay. They said lines. There was a script. A script existed. I think that's part of the problem. A lot of script existed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was going to say like a four. Because at least a script exists. A story is there. Yeah. And they they say their lines, albeit they shout. But they're <laughs> saying their lines. <laughs> I don't know, four, four. Just, that's Great. it. Like, and it's so frustrating because usually in a show, I love when things get small. I love a big plot and then we zoom in on the characters. But something here is just, it's like the opposite. It doesn't work at all. Should we, should we go direction and choreo? I would love to. Directed by Trevor Nunn. Musical director was Paul Bogayev. And the dance staging, that's very important, Dance staging was the credit by Lynn Taylor Corbett. The first woman on the creative team. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Lynn. It's the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> right, wrong, wrong. So, folks, where to begin? I let's start with direction. Do you have a uh something you'd like to get out? Again, it <laughs> felt so close to opera direction. The stand and sing. Yeah, the stand and sing. I also just was like seeing this tiny little little game being played by these men in office chairs. Yeah, it just felt very 80s. Transitions were exciting. The elevator scene was exciting. They had mm-hmm. these set pieces come in and there was lights and there was a revolve. Like those $12 million, they were like, we have to use all these set pieces. We are seeing that a lot. It seems to me, it would be really hard. It's really hard to direct a show where the two main things that are happening are international espionage (laughs) and playing chess, you know? (laughs) Two very sort of intimate (laughs) activities. Exactly, very, (laughs) 
<laughs> very small things. Notepad. So that would be that would be my thing as well. It's a lot of standing around, a lot of um that's not bad in general in a play. There's lots of plays that are written, there are people standing around, but like how many office chairs can we use in different ways? Like in our play, in our blocking? Maybe it was because the book wasn't effective. Maybe I didn't like the direction itself there. The blocking felt very static. It didn't usually feel very, um, very exciting. Because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I've seen plenty of plays that are just like three rooms or whatever, or take place in one room. Right. And there's a lot of strategies that mm -hmm. I've seen talented directors use to, um, to keep things really electric and engaging. Yeah, the stage was so bare. So bare, The stage right? was like this cavern, and there was two people at the front of it and maybe a couch, and that was it. And it was so yeah. stark, and it was so 80s and, like, office vibes. <laughs> and, like, there was no relationship between these actors and, like, the world because it was mm -hmm. so big and nothing. Yeah. yeah. It was like they were in a void, but that didn't feel like a choice. It felt like we just didn't set decorate. We exactly. didn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Jill? Where's your head? So... I struggle because it is your job as the director to break out of that. And also you have a say in that. Like you get to be like, you know what? Cut this table. Or we have these three projector screens. Let's like do a weird random version of the chess game where they're both staring at the screen and moving big pieces. Like you can come up with ways to like oh, invite cool. people in, you know, like the way, okay. And I always come back to Queen's Gambit because I really enjoyed it. But the way she visualizes the game on the ceiling mm -hmm. in a larger than life way. Like I think kind of try to innovate, try to think of ways to, to break out of what you've been given or collaborate with, with people differently. At least for this production, it seems like they almost made a conscious decision. We're not going to do anything with the chess. The, the playing of chess mm. itself is going to be a very, we're barely going to focus on it. We're going to move through it quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a thing. What, what's ha where's the chess? Like, what's, I yeah. was told there'd be chess. Like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone said, I RSVP'd under the condition that there would be chess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, writing that in, like, a, on, like, a response card or something to, like, yeah. what did you think of the show? For a show called Chess, there wasn't a lot of chess. <laughs> yes. Dad, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think this is a natural segue into the choreo. What is it? Dance setting? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Dance staging. Dance staging. Da dance staging, yes. Because there were, what, two numbers? One night in Bangkok and... Merchandisers. Was the Merchandisers one the one where, yeah, there was like a guy with a tambourine and he did like a stag jump. The Merchandisers like goes into One Night in Bangkok. Okay, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So it's just okay. this one sequence. Like, <laughs> one giant... A third of the way through Act One, really. Yeah. What I liked about One Night in Bangkok, and like I said, there's a lot of, there was a lot about it that made me really uncomfortable because it is about about the sex trade in um in bangkok right it's there's a, a large focus on that absolutely in yeah which is whew, that's a hell of a thing to tackle in a musical especially if you're not actually going to tackle it you're just going to do a song about it literally right from a just from a dramaturgical point of view i liked the movement all of a sudden i was engaged i was seems to me there's a reason that we we have variety in these things you know what i mean that we go big number small 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 big number small 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 or like this play, small, 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 well, this small, is what I'm small, 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 this small, is what small, I'm saying. small, 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 small,
It was like, you had all these arias, you had all these like small moments. And then one night in Bangkok and you're like, we have an ensemble, we have costumes, we have dance staging. We've got someone doing this crazy pop and lock and dancing, um, like body isolation. It looks incredible. Exactly. And you're like, okay, this is what's going to happen. And then never again was it seen. Jill, you're covering your mouth when I mentioned the pop and locking dancing, which I, is, is that a tell? I was so excited to see it yeah. for, for the same reasons you're talking about where it's like, oh good, we're moving, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was excited because it seemed like they hired a person who actually knew how to do those things. Like it wasn't just like a bunch of chorus folks who were like, oh, I guess this is how you like pop lock tut and break like I don't know like it was very clearly a person who had trained in those styles so it was like very I was like yes thank you but but there was only one person that could do it so then it always kind of felt like it wasn't balanced I was like oh you should have hired a whole ensemble if this was like the style you were going for you know I was uncomfortable with it felt very cultural appropriation-y Agree completely. In terms of the costuming in terms of how we're gonna do this one song about this specific place and everyone on the stage. From what I saw, yes. all the main characters were white. It just was a little like... Yeah. And there was there was a rap at the beginning of that song. The whole the whole song is rapped. All the verses, they're always rapped by Freddie. Which again, was just a little like, what's happening? Where are we? And why is this right. only happening now? I couldn't agree more. Very bizarre. A lot of, a lot of stuff that made me, uh, made me feel weird. It's almost... It's almost too bad that One Night in Bangkok is the one that ended up being a big old pop hit. Can can this show exist without it? Yeah, and the answer is yes. yes. yes the answer is yes. There we go. We <laughs> solved it. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone have any last thoughts about the direction and choreo before we give it a mark? I wanted more choreo. You hired a choreographer. Get something in that too as well. You hired a dance stager, not a choreographer. Fair you can only yeah. do three numbers as a... As a movement person. Oh, wow. Well, to be fair, their budget was only $12 million. They probably couldn't yeah. afford a choreographer. Yeah. Good point. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we going to give this direction and choreo? Because we should put it all together. Oh, yeah. I would give five monkeys out of 10 playbills. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it happened. That's it. <laughs> I'll go five as well. There's some moments that are exciting and um, not quite as static. But for the most part, I even had trouble like, keeping track of where we were in space at any point in time. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't, I can't go higher than five. I don't think. No, I'm a four and a half. Absolutely. I just was upset by it. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> but again, they said their lines. They moved around. They entered. They exited. Absolutely. Dance had been staged. Yeah. Dance. <laughs> Dances were staged. <laughs> yeah. Scenic design by Robin Wagner. Welcome back. Costume design by Taoni V. Aldridge. Lighting design by David Hersey. Sound design by Andrew Bruce. And hair and makeup design by Schubert and De Niro. Not that Schubert, not that De Niro. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I just want to make sure that was clear. So if you've never seen an image of this musical, if I had to describe it to someone, I would say if... In the 80s, if IBM were to make a musical, this is what it would look like. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And like the IBM, you know that the the logo with all the stripes across. That's that's oh, what I? I picture with this. Absolutely. It is power suit. It is gray. It is sparse. Yeah. It is capitalism. It is yes. just like cable knit sweaters. It is shoulder pads. Yes. It is mullets. It is oh. everything. Yes. <laughs> I love eighties clothing. Like if you go through my closet. If it's not from the 80s, like a thrifted or vintage piece, it is reminiscent of. So for me, parts of this are are joyful. I see myself in certain aspects of this design. But that doesn't mean I like it. So like, what else do we have in terms of design? There's, there's a Revolve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Things are, I don't know, the Revolve gets used a lot. That's great. There are office chairs. Oh, are there ever? Yeah. And there's TV screens. Yeah. Yes. A lot. There's walls, big walls. And like, I think like columns, columns and shadows. Yeah. But again, like if you were to ask me where those columns and things came from, I don't know. I really right. don't know. <laughs> so this is the same thing we talked about. You have trouble even keeping track of where we are in space. Yes. There is one cool shout out I wanted to give. Oh, okay. They do in act, in act two, they do like a car effect. Oh yes. The backing up car. Yeah. There's like yeah. a backing up and it just looks like headlights going into the shadows. That looked great. Like, fantastic. Like, we're magicians in the theater, and that's the magic we can do. Yeah, but for $12 million, I need a, <laughs> I need a Ferrari on the stage. Yeah. You know? Like, again, that would be great at a regional production. Cool. You did the headlights. It had a sound. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. But, like, I need a helicopter. You're, well, this is it. You're you're right beside Miss Saigon is going to come yes! out, like, that next year. That is true. And they're yeah. going to fly a helicopter down. Exactly. So I don't like, know what to tell you. Where did the money go? Where did the money go? Like, actually. So, it was almost like they sort of like gently allotted their budget towards set but if they would have not at all would that have been better i think that again they are trying to really really lean into the capitalistic model we have of broadway musicals and being like we're just gonna throw so much money at it and that one song's gonna be super flashy and we're gonna have you know these screens and revolve and whatever and again tried to make it into this big monumental hit by leaning into capitalism and by leaning into putting all this money into it when really it's like like we said the concert version having it be this intimate thing is actually more um effective for the the vehicle that is this this music and this storyline yes yeah, yeah, i yeah, agree yeah. also did it seem like the lighting design is very dark yeah. It was dark. However, it was very active. Like I yeah. saw a lot. I noticed a lot of shifts. Okay. I just, the only thing I can really think of in terms of like set and lighting is that elevator scene. And I just was amused mm-hmm. by that. Yeah. And other than that, I was not amused by a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But do you want to know how much $12 million is today? I'm scared. It is almost $30 million. <gasps> So if you went to see a $30 million musical and that is what you saw. Oh my God. I'd be grumpy. I'd be grumpy. Yeah. Yeah. I would be grumpy for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If we had to rate this um, on a scale of monkeys versus playbills, of playbills versus monkeys, where would everyone's head be at? Set, costumes, lighting, design, the whole design package. Yes. If I were to give it a monkeys out of playbills, I would say uh, a six. Easily. A six. I agree completely. You yeah. know? Absolutely. Yeah. It feels like they were being just the, had the coolest contemporary clothes on. And at, when you look back on it, it definitely doesn't age as well as other it's its contemporaries. Yeah, I was a five, five and a half. So we're all kind of in the same world there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now do we get to talk about the performances? We do. 
Judy Kuhn sounds great. Oh, she yeah. sounds incredible. <laughs> so in uh, someone else's story, I had to pull up the music because I was like, this is remarkable. Yeah. And her mix is unbelievable. She's singing like down to a G, mixing up oh my to a B. God. It's effortless vocally i like she is a technician it was amazing there i I was so impressed by her i was also impressed by the woman who played svetlana their Mm -hmm. duet was amazing there was this one moment at the very end they sing i know him so well i had to go back a couple times because the way that they maneuver that diphthong of so well i was like that's a really good pull, Julie. That's some good music <laughs> yeah. direction right there. I was like, conductor did some good work. Stayed up late one night trying to figure out exactly where that diphthong was going to shift. They had it on lock. <laughs> I had never heard David Carroll before. Me neither. Yeah. Which was surprising because I, I really like Grand Hotel, but I didn't hadn't researched the history as much. And I didn't know. He's, he's a really tragic story, eh? Hmm. Tell us. He was really up and, co- up and coming as a Broadway performer. Did this is crazy good in this um and it just been he he was the baron in the original grand hotel and um passed away from um he was uh hiv positive passed away from complications due to um, to aids he passed away while he was in the process of making the grand hotel cast recording um and so doesn't appear on the cast recording other than on like a bonus track that i had never heard of him singing one of the songs live i did not realize and you watch him here he's incredible Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, he's so good. And so it's a really tragedy of someone who would have been a um, a powerhouse to this day, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yes. being, being lost way too soon. Wow. Tim singing Anthem is outstanding. Oh, yeah. It's outstanding. Him and Judy Kuhn would be my two, my two MVPs in this show for sure. For sure, for yeah. sure. They yelled the least as well, so I appreciate that. And I was like, I heard Judy Kuhn sing and I was like, wow, wow, wow. That sounds, this is the exact same kind of voice. This voice... Um, this really effortless, low to mid and mixed range mm-hmm. that I usually see in one of my favorite voices of all time, Carolee Carmelo. Mm-hmm. And when Chess, when the U.S. production of Chess went out on tour, guess who stepped into this track for Judy Kuhn? A young Carolee Carmelo! Oh, that's a brilliant connection. I like that. Where are your guys' heads at? My favorite, for sure, is Judy Kuhn. Being the only female voice, really, that we hear... In the entire show, it's just, she was magnificent. Her voice is so beautiful, so free. Her vibrato, mm-hmm. her mix. In the time that we were at in the late 80s, that scrouting, belting was really starting to happen in a way that, unlike now, people have understood the mix of it all. It felt yes. like at that point, it really was super raw. And she's doing something that's so free and so open and like, I just, I could listen to her sing all day. Me too. The offstage singers in Nobody's Side, I had to go back and listen again three times because I was like, this song is so freaking good. And the offstage singers, those harmonies were like, (gasps) unreal. (sighs) Right there. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's so fascinating that you say that because like you think of that lineage, that lineage of um, vocal production. We've talked about it a little bit on this show before when we talked about Alice Ripley, mm. um, who came after this, you know, like Judy Kuhn begot, begets Alice Ripley and Elaine Page and Betty Buckley begets Judy Kuhn. You know mm. what I mean? 
And so it's it's especially fascinating um, to see another voice really starting to push those boundaries. Leia Salonga is another one that's happening right around this time oh who's just gosh, yeah. destroying yeah, yeah. it left and right. But it's especially fascinating seeing Elaine Page sing this track so iconically and then have Judy Kuhn step into it and put her own spin on it while still experimenting with this same, the power mix technique. Mm-hmm. Like an, a lost master of power mix hmm. who doesn't get as much credit as Betty Buckley or Elaine that's Page. That's so true. She really doesn't. Like, she's not a person whose name would come up, I don't think, at the forefront of a conversation about it. But she is the uh, perfect example of it. She's at the top of my list now, man. What do you think of um, Philip Kasnoff, who plays uh, Freddy? Uh, I just, there was so much shouting, like, in the dialogue, like, from him. And then there was the other guy, the, um, the Arbiter shouted a lot, too. And I was like, why are we yelling so much? What's this about? Yeah, I have a hard time differentiating lots of male voices on stage. Yeah. And especially <laughs> especially when they're all in power suits and they're all standing like three feet from each other on this, you know, dark stage. Who are you? What are you saying? Right. Who are you talking to? Yeah, I had a hard time following that. Yeah. We've brought this up a few times now. So let's let's just address this. There's too many dudes in this show. Let's, yeah. I mean, there's so many dudes. Come if you on look now. back, though, look back on musical theater at this time yeah. and, and let's count, you know, and you'll notice, you'll notice it. And of course, it's still a problem now, but yeah. it's obviously changing a bit. But if you look at the 80s, the 80s are a great example of the disparity between. Yeah. And the women are only used as as objects of love or desire or affection, mm-hmm. right? Especially yeah. in this show, it's like, why couldn't the arbiter have been... A woman. Right. I mean, there's a couple interviewers who are females, but the mm. they could all be women. Everyone could be a woman. Like, yep. especially as you said, I'd, at first I'd been like, oh, but at least um, Florence's character, she's got a, you know, she's got a plot that revolves around something other than a love interest and that she's looking for her father. But as you guys pointed out, she's not really. <laughs> she's just, she's dependent yeah, no. <laughs> on dudes to look for her father for her. Yeah, like she never really does it. She's yeah. busy with other things. Mm-hmm. Like, make it in a man's world. It's really too bad. It's really... <laughs> There we go. Hot takes from monkeys and playbills. Hot there takes from go. monkeys and playbills. Chess should have more women in it. More <laughs> AFAB performers in it. Yeah, there we go. I'll say in Philip Kasnoff, who plays Freddy's defense, that's a special hell of a sing. Like, it's so high, so much, and never a chance to... It's not, not even like Jean Valjean or something where it pops high three times in the show. Right. He's always living there. I will say, um, I think that Philip Kasnoff um, navigates that pretty well. For the situation he's been put in. I'm into that. I, I'm cool with, with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm nodding. Yeah. I'm yeah, nodding gently. Yeah. <laughs> so out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we giving these performances? I would say, given the material, a seven. Seven monkeys out of 10 playbills. I'm going to go one higher. I'm going to say an eight because I will forever be indebted to this show and to this podcast for introducing me to Judy Kuhn who I'm going to follow forever now. (laughs) Yeah, we love Judy. Absolutely. I'm going to say seven and a half. I love the way that most of these singers navigate this music. I also quite liked the ensemble when they were allowed to sing. Yes. I thought... I thought when they were invited to participate, they sounded amazing. They were together. Their diction was crisp. I understood what they were saying. And and also I understood what the function was vocally um, in those moments. So I think that's worth noting. This is really strong music direction. It's really it excellent. It really is. Across yeah. The board. yeah. So yeah, seven and a half for me. All right. Is it Tony time? It's Tony time. It's Tony time. It's Tony time. <laughs> 
This is the oldest Tonys we've covered on a full episode. We've touched on it a little bit in our Revive or Die episodes, but this is the oldest show we've covered on a regular season Monkeys and Playbills episode, I believe. Throwing it back. Yeah, let's talk about the um, the eight Tonys in the 80s. Okay, so it's June 5th, 1988. Yeah. Everyone's favorite teapot is hosting. <gasps> Welcome, Murder, She Wrote, Angela Lansbury. And it's the 42nd annual Tony Awards. So this is, I think, my favorite Tony year for a few reasons. This is a wild Tony year. Holy shit. This is the year of the biggest upset in Tony's history to me. Bigger than uh, Avenue Q taking it from Wicked? That's pretty big. That's commonly known as the biggest upset. So maybe this is the second biggest upset. No, I'd say this is bigger. History has shown that this is bigger. See if you can guess what took it from Into the Woods in 1988. Um, okay. Lloyd Webber's happening. Lloyd Webber takes it. Oh, with what? You tell me. What is it in 88? It's not Cats. It's not Cats. <gasps> Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera took it from Into the Woods. Yeah. Wow. Right? Right? Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> I think up until 2003 or four, whenever that Tony Awards was, this would have been the upset of the century. Absolutely. I will say, though, that Into the Woods ended up winning, like, Best Book and Best Score and, and a bunch of other Tonys. It just didn't take Best Musical. What a wild Tonys this is. It's really all the, the musical categories are all either Phantom or Into the Woods. Wow. Yeah. So to think that this small but mighty show was playing at the same time, it's no wonder that it's sort of... Well, underperformed, I guess. Like, again, if we're looking at grand- grandiosity of productions, mm-hmm. you have the freaking chandelier falling on an audience. Do you want to hear some other highlights from um, the 42nd Tonys? Yes. Yeah, tell us. Let's see here. Frances McDormand um, doesn't win That's but gets nominated right. for Streetcar. Oh, wow. For st- playing Stella, right? For playing Stella in Streetcar. Well, first of all, should we talk about which one's chess took? Well, it was nominated for two. Yep. David Carroll... Um, got a nom for Best Performance by a Leading Actor and Judy Kuhn for Best uh, Performance by a Leading Actress. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was going to say John Lithgow had a nom for M. Butterfly. That's right. I forgot because that was the year of M. Butterfly. Yeah. Michael Michael Crawford in Phantom took the um, Leading Actor in a Musical, but also nominated besides David Carroll was Scott Bakula for Romance Romance. What a year. All right, y'all. Should this be a musical? Julie, why don't you go first? You've like been so confident in your gradings throughout this. Like normally we have to like gently coax our guests. I'm just out here bashing this whole. Yeah, you're like, oh, it's one. It's one. Okay. So should this be a musical? Um, (laughs) A musical in the traditional sense. uh, No, I think chess the concert. I think chess odyssey in music. Sure. But a musical in the way that we think of song and dance and acting and sets and costume, no. I just don't. I think that it should be a concert or a cute little intimate something. But a Broadway musical, I just don't think it holds up. So I came in with a certain opinion. But I try to, here on Monkeys and Playbills, I try to not have my final opinions locked in until we've actually had a discussion. Because this is a discussion podcast. We talk about it together. We get some of the most brilliant people I know on this podcast and I value their opinions. So I want to hear them. And over the course of this discussion, I came in being like, yeah, chess should be a musical. That Broadway production was a disaster, but I can make this work if we worked real hard. But I think I actually agree with you 100%, J-Lums. 
I think that the mute, just the score itself tells a real interesting story that we can work with, you know, maybe take out One Night in Bangkok entirely, that's, there's no place for that in this world <laughs> as it stands today, um, do some um, some gender bending to make sure that it's more um, representative of the uh, performers who are actually living it. I wouldn't be interested in seeing a production of this, I'd be interested in working on a concert version of this th- with those caveats. Yes. And that's it. So I don't think this should be a musical. What about you, Jill? I feel exactly the same. Yeah. I love it with maybe like a, you know how the WSO will do like a, an underperformed um, musical and mount it more in a concert format. And I think this, this would be the perfect candidate for something like that. When you can hear it played to its fullest as a score, hear it sung to its fullest, but we don't need to deal with all the extra doodads on stage. We don't need it. We don't need it. And not be as long. Oh long. my God, cut out yeah. half of it. Half, absolutely. Yeah, a cute 90 minutes. Like, that's all we need. We've heard the arguments. We've reached some decisions. We've shared some opinions. But there's still one final thing that the people want. We got to give it to them. Is the Broadway production of Chess, is Chess 1988 a flop? Is it a secret bop? Or is it so bad you got to make it stop? Everyone, So everyone's clear, we're not talking about Chess the musical as it exists. We're talking about Chess, the Broadway version that went on stage. I think it's a flop. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's a flop for me. I think it might be a make it stop for me. (gasps) Wow. I'm saying that with the caveat of everyone who's just listened to this whole podcast and seen what I think of this show itself. You took a show that ran for three years in the West End and it couldn't break 100 in the US. You did something wrong. Make it stop. (laughs) Paul's now lecturing. (laughs) For God's sake. I feel like I'm in trouble. You did something real wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Going full on dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what about you, Jill? Technically, the music is still a bop. Straight up bop. The production was a flop, a total flop. Unquestionably. So then then I think it's a make it stop. I think we need to make the 1988 Broadway production stop. Yeah. Revisit this musical, ignore anything that happened on Broadway in 1988, and maybe we'll talk. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like, imagine if it ended in UK and it had a lovely three-year run and then maybe had a cute little, you know, remount, a revival mm-hmm. and had that. A tour. But instead, this thing has been tainted really by its Broadway yeah. run. So much so that people think of chess as a disaster when it was so successful before Broadway. Like, who knows what it could have been to this day if Broadway hadn't happened. That's an excellent point. Ooh, I want to think about that while I fall asleep tonight. This musical is a good thing to think about when you want to sleep. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we've had some laughs. We've had some tears. We've gone back and forth. Thank you for listening to our episode on chess. Thank you to Julie Lumsden for being here. Yay! (laughs) Thanks for having me, friends. It's really good to hang out. (laughs) So nice. Yeah. This is the reason. Get double vaxxed so you can go to Ontario and go to the Shaw Festival and support live theater again. And see Julie Lumsden in what shows you and Jay? Um, I am doing a play called Flush, which is an adaptation of a Virginia Woolf novella. Very cool. Love it. Uh, and a couple concerts and, and different fun things. We're doing them all outside. Yes. Amazing. We're back, baby. Performance is back. Go support it in any way you can. Join us next time when we're going to talk about my favorite Silver Fox and his Broadway musical, Bright Star. Yep, that's right. It's Father of the Bride, Steve Martin. Yeah. We're going to do another one that got away. Just peaked just over 100, but we're going to tackle it anyways. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. 
Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Bright Star. <laughs>